take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ampler. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently, this deserves a goal, and he's got it, what a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colvin, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi brilliant, what a goal this will be, magic! Can't break free of the tackle, and Rook rolls it along the line, that is amazing! Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. And again, there's a turnover. And Edwards, the little genius, drives it home. Chapman can run in and finish the job. Of Kidinia Park, it's the Cats Whiskers. Hello, and welcome to the Cats Whiskers podcast for another week. I'm Wes Cussworth. It's fabulous to have you listening, whether you're hearing us through any of a number of podcasting platforms or on Sport FM in Perth. Let's meet this week's panel. Mark Browning, welcome to you. Can five preferred later results soften the blow of the Cats losing last Thursday night? Hello, Wes. Hello, everyone. Well, it's just that kind of long spread out weekend thing, isn't it? Where the Cats lost on Thursday night and then, uh, let's see, I saw uh, St Kilda win, Collingwood lose, uh, North Melbourne win, Bulldogs win and the Crows lose. Now, that's a personal journey, but it just, it just makes the end of the weekend feel better than the start of the weekend. And I think that's important. I remember when it was Geelong play on a Sunday late and they lose and you go to work the next day, that's almost the worst kind of weekend you can have. And I'll throw that wide open where that does. Is it enough of a consolation to have five teams that you prefer to win win if your special team loses in the first round of the, of the weekend? First game. I only, I'm only interested in one result. All right, Mark. I, I share your uh, your feelings because I was rather rather distraught Thursday night, but by Friday night I was feeling pretty happy with the world once the Tigers got knocked off. So I'd, I'd come to peace with the world at that stage. Well, that's Anthony Petkovic and Mark Brunger. But Pekka, I want to introduce you to the program by asking you, and I know that you are a follower of football very, very closely, particularly from a tactical point of view, a performance point of view, and former cat Tim Kelly over there at the West Coast Eagles. Uh, of course, they got done. Um, is Tim, Tim Kelly the same player at West Coast as he was at Geelong? No, he's not. I was watching the game yesterday really closely, and I, I saw it was Tim Kelly. It looked like Tim Kelly. He moved like Tim Kelly. That's not the Tim Kelly I know from Geelong. And it got me wondering. So I looked up the stats. Wouldn't you believe that in the... He's played now 30 games with the West Coast. Compared to his last 30 games at Geelong, he is 132 disposals down. Massively down in kicks, down in marks, down in handballs. But that's not all. In his last 30 games at Geelong, 10 times he had over 30 possessions in a game. In his first 30 games with the West Coast, he's had just three. And look at this for goals. In his last 30 games at Geelong, he'd kicked 33 goals, more than one a game. He has kicked nine goals with the Eagles in his first 30 games there. It's not the Tim Kelly I know. Something is amiss. Yes, makes for very, very interesting mm. examination, as you've just done and shared with us. Thanks so much, Anthony. Mark Brunger, uh, back to you. Uh, it looks like there's some pretty challenging times coming up for those responsible for list management at the Cats, particularly keeping our young players, mindful that other clubs, no doubt, are looking very, very closely at some of our gun youngsters. 
Absolutely, Wes. Uh, good evening to you. Good evening to the panel and uh, also to our listeners. Uh, yeah, we've discussed a number of times in this program the, the fact that uh, the uh, dad's army uh, of the over 30s uh, for Geelong, whilst they're playing well at the moment, uh, it's hampering somewhat the, the development and the, uh, the match uh, match availability of players like Quentin Narkle, Charlie Constable, uh, Jordan Clark, although Jordan Clark now unfortunately has, has injured himself in the VFL. But uh, we certainly know that uh, the two teams' uh, uh, fans who are listening to us uh, through Sport FM are very keen to entice him back home. But I just think that that we run the risk of, of, of losing that next tier and that next generation of team to build. Um, by the by, the current uh, situation we find ourselves in, and, and there's probably a couple of those over thirties uh, that uh, Coach Criscott, for my opinion, has a little bit too much faith in, and, and are actually holding back the development uh, of some of those those younger players. So there's going to be some really tricky moments for Stephen Wells and the match uh, and the list management uh, team for the Geelong Football Club at the at the end of the season and. Uh, uh, by G, the the success of the club over the next five to ten years depends on them getting it right. Yes, plenty to think about there too. Well, coming up is our very special guest for this week's Cats Whiskers podcast. It's one of the sharpest minds from the tactical perspective. It is Brendan McCartney, former assistant coach at the Cats, who of course went on to be a coach in his own right at the Western Bulldogs. <laughs> Welcome back to the Cats Whiskers podcast with Wes Cussworth, Anthony Petkovic, Mark Browning and Mark Brunger. And here's Anthony Petkovic to introduce this week's guest. Well, he barely needs any introduction to any keen follower of football in Geelong. A four-time premiership coach with Ocean Grove in the Ballerine Football League, an assistant coach at Richmond, Geelong, uh, Essendon and Melbourne. And of course, at one stage held the senior coaching position with the Western Bulldogs. And that guest this evening is none other than Brendan McCartney. Welcome to the program, Brendan. Thanks, Pecco. Thanks for having me. Uh, Brendan, tell us about your time at Ocean Grove. That must uh, bring back some great memories there in the in the late 90s. And uh, uh, Ocean Grove had an enormous run of success in the Ballerine League. Yeah, they did. It was, it was a great time uh, in my footy life, really. It was an opportunity to be part of a club that was built on a one-club philosophy, the... Predominantly, the, the senior team was stocked with young people who'd come through what was then the Vic Kick program and then the Junior Little League, which was under 11 and under 13, into the, the under 15s, uh, under 18s, reserves and seniors. And we, we managed to do it pretty well and probably linked the, the footy club and the netball club with the town. So it became very much a community thing and uh, we knew what we stood for. Uh, it, was, it was pretty easy every year, you just knew how to plethora of young players coming through and we got to work with them and when, when an older guy left or, or moved out of the town or, or retired, we, we generally just replaced them with a, a young kid out of the reserves or the, or the under-18s. It was, it was a good time. Ocean Grove at that time, Ocean Grove and Torquay were really just starting to grow and explode. Bowen Heads hadn't taken off at that stage and Port Arlington and St Leonard's were still sleepy little villages but Ocean Grove at that time had the most kids in Vic Kick in Australia, which I learnt my second week in and I was probably fortunate. I went down to do a function for members uh, at about a breakfast that morning and went back into Geelong because we were playing later that afternoon and I, something made me look at what is now Shell Road and there was an overlay with no facilities like you have now and uh, there were kids everywhere and I went, well, what is this? So I went down and had a look and Shane O'Neill, great that mate of mine was running the whole thing and he recognised me and introduced me to people and I said, Shane, we're going to start bringing senior players down here. I'll come down, they'll come down. And it was, a, it was probably a very similar model to what Gordon Hines built at North Shore years before that, where early 70s he started the North Shore Little League and, and what it became was a, a breeding ground for players for almost 40 years for that club, really. They, they were dominant GFL team for three or four decades and got to the stage where uh, the senior players would umpire the, the junior games on a Sunday morning, be part of training and, and the young kids connected with the, 
the older guys, and we, and we had a probably the crescendo of it all was we had a, a young fellow called Adam Richardson who kicked 120 goals in a 16 game season down there, missed a couple of games through injury, and uh, we had about 200 kids coming to watch him play every week, and they would just go end to end, stand behind the goals and watch him. So yeah. it was sort of a time where we didn't really know what we were doing. We had an idea and we just went and did it and, and set them up for a, a long period of time, 14 or 15 grand finals in a row. But it was probably what I'm even doing out in North Ballarat, that the learnings and the philosophies haven't really changed since then. Brendan, uh, on this panel that you're uh, being interrogated by tonight, there's a, there's a bit of teaching qualification there and teaching experience as you, um, with yourself. Um, as you've gone into your coaching, how much of... And, and I heard an interview from with um, Mike Sheehan, with Peter Hudson and John Newman and, and Barry Richardson the other day, and, and Hudson talked about Kennedy being a teacher and Clarkson having teaching experience. How much of the teaching experience is transferable? Did you find was transferable when you went into footy coaching and the further you went in, and you know, particularly say Ocean Grove, where you were really blossoming as a coach? Uh, enormous amount, Mark. Is I've got uh, just the ability to, or the probably the the job itself uh, requires and teaches you to get to know people uh, and understand them, and understand they all learn differently, they all react differently, but sort of. Uh, I guess, lash that to what your philosophies and beliefs are and, and not change those and find ways to get young people in particular and to link to that. And, you know, the role that, you know, the, the older guys play in a club and I guess seeing the bigger picture. And, and I, I've always believed that, you know, great teachers can do anything. You know, I've seen some, I've been privileged to work with some fantastic teachers and, and not so fantastic teachers and the, and the Qualities generally pretty similar. They're, they're very good at uh, providing respect and support and encouragement. They, they provide good role modelling for, the, for their players. They're, they're pretty organised in what they do. They, they know their stuff and generally speaking, they're good listeners and that generally creates a club where there's a harmony and conversations happen and listening and, and respect. So I guess all the things they teach at uni or teachers college back in those days ultimately do, do help and, you know, and for all that, though, I guess nothing, you know, the higher you go up the ladder in coaching or the, the more extreme the competition, uh, you, you still got to win games. So being able to do all that and build the environment and win enough games along the journey to get people off your backs a little bit. Brendan, uh, I'd like to go back to, uh, to, the, to the early days and uh, doing some, uh, some research for today's uh, interview. Um, I read uh, an interview that you did with uh, The Age not long after taking up the, uh, the Footscray uh, or the Western Bulldogs role as, as senior coach there. And um, you recalled uh, in detail the old Nyer change rooms back in the day. Uh, you came from up Nyer. Uh, sawdust on the wood floor, cloth ankle bandages, the smell of liniment smearing the, smearing the nostrils. Uh, the McCartneys were Nyer and the Roses were Nyer West. So can you take us back to those early days in Nyer and, and tell us how, uh, how important they were in, in the development of, of where you are today? Oh, incredibly, Mark, because um, yeah, footy was almost uh, injected into us from a young age because Dad, uh, when I think back now, he was still coaching country footy when I was five or six, but I don't remember those games or, or how they looked, but it was just the way it was. Uh, it was our family. Uh, Dad had five brothers that all played footy. In actual fact, they all played a game together, which was quite incredible. I'm not sure what the record is for brothers in the team, but uh, that's going to give it a bit of a note. And, you know, and two or three of them were really good country footballers. You know, Dad had a crack at Richmond in the late 50s, mid to late 50s. Uncle Billy, who recently deceased, went down to South Melbourne two or three times and because it was part of their zone. And uh, so... Yeah, it's a difficult thing to encapsulate in words, but I think that article, you know, with growing up, smelling what a change room is, you know, and, and even being back at country footy now, uh, one of them walked past me with DP on Saturday, and which was back in the day was liniment or tiger balm or whatever it was. <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. And, you know, even when we do it now at, at North, you know, we, we're 
we're hell bent on making sure that everyone's connected and we're all in it together. And that's something I've always been um, really big on, really, really solid with it. Uh, it's a whole club thing. So you know, we went through the netball, reser- uh, the netball results in the change rooms. We don't go upstairs. We do it officially a bit later. Everyone has a beer. There's no review. You know, I, I might just say I'm very good win on Saturday and I just reminded the senior players of how proud everyone was of their ability to fight back and get a win, acknowledge the reserves playing well. And, and that's what I grew up with. And, and probably, you know, my time at the Bulldogs, I, I wasn't able to create that. I, I tried my darndest to get that and I just couldn't get it done. But all the other environments I was in for had been for a long, long time, even the Falcon Spills and Peko and I were working together. We just had this fantastic connection between the girls. They, they understood each other, they loved each other and respected one another. So uh, I don't know how it happens, but I, I think I've got an eye for it that was probably bred into me and uh, was there from, from day one. But, you know, it goes back to Sunday morning, you know, the Sunday morning training run at the Nye Recreation Reserve and, in the barrel after, you know, you'd be whipping around the floor, flinging it around, picking up, you know, 20 cent pieces or 10 cent pieces, um, taking empty glasses back to the, no, back in the days with the raffle tickets, they just put them on the inside of the glass. You know, I'm not a how, sure how hygienic, hygienic that was, but <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was pivotal, you know, just you you got to love the game. You If you've got a love of the game, it'll it'll keep drawing you back and it, and it's not a hardship, you know, losses you can deal with, wins you keep in your stride. You, it, it's not difficult if you if you really love the game. Macca, we first crossed paths when I was umpiring in the GFL and you were playing for Newtown and Chewell and uh, I probably got the odd spray, uh, maybe a, a dodgy decision or something like that at that point. But your footy career finished at about 27, I believe, and was it an immediate sort of thing that was injury-related, of course? Was it an immediate thought for you that coaching might be the alternative pathway for you to remain involved in the game? Uh, not not really. I sort of fell into it working at Chanel. I started sort of coaching a couple of the teams and uh, we played Assumption one day and we wrestled this team together. There was about eight kids who played footy. There were basketballers and we had about seven or eight Croatian soccer players and they were amazing athletes and it turned out that Three or four of them went to play, went on to play soccer at the highest level, you know, national level, international level. They were amazing kids and tough and, and just understood when to hold the ball, how to create space, how to open up the ground, how to close space down. And we, we played at the old support ground, Walker Reserve, and uh, we were a couple of goals up at three-quarter time and we, we, we played probably what you see now. We, we pushed 18 up level with the ball. So basically we played 18 kids in one half of the ground and gave up a goal and uh, hung on and won by seven. I don't know how we beat them because they were, that was a time where they were all conquering. And uh, I remember going into um, Ray Carroll and he was, he was addressing them and uh, we, we took some party pies and he was horrified. One, he was horrified that I think the school that no one had ever heard of would beat them and two, that were offering them food and, uh, the kids knew that they were going back to the boarding school that night and they were going to get harangued for getting beaten by a, a no-name school. But it was probably just fun. It, it was just great to grab a group of kids together and, and create a little bit of way of playing and, and get it done. And then then you just think, oh, well, I'll, I'll keep going and then start at New Town Reserves and glorious start of the career, three or four wins in a year and you end up playing again and get bashed up and hurt and hurt your knees that, still cause you grief now, um, and, and the rest is history, I guess. Speaking of history, you um, found your way to Richmond and, and uh, uh, coached briefly there, I think coach of the reserves, if I, if I remember correctly, and then um, formed that great partnership with Bomber Thompson at Geelong. Um, did you, were you aware of how big a job it was getting Geelong premiership ready? It took about eight seasons before had some real success. There must have been some real highs and lows along the way there. Yeah, there was, Pete. That's a great question. You know, I think as when you, you know, people will go to the football on Friday night and the lights are on and the stadium is amazing. It's a, you know, a massive feature, not only in Geelong, but in the whole regional Victoria. It's incredible that a, that a club in regional Victoria can have a stadium like that and, 
uh, host a club or be part of a club that's been just incredibly successful, not just in the last 12 or 13 years, but if you look back through their history of getting to grand finals and prelims, it's, it's extraordinary, really, and have produced some amazing players and phenomenal coaches and, and great memories. But uh, the, the point to remember is that back in 1999, the stadium was in disarray. Uh, I think I remember Cookie saying in a meeting to us that before they opened the doors for the start of the 2000 season, they were basically paying a million dollars in interest. So they had to make a million dollars profit to to pay the interest bill. It was an ageing list. You know, there were some tough decisions made by Cookie, Gary Davidson, Bomber, all of us around moving great Geelong names on. They, they, were, they were big names and had performed for the club for a long time and Replacing the kids in the draft that people one didn't know, never even heard of, let alone know what they look like or how they play. And and Bomber, I remember him sitting us down one day and just said, "Look, the, the lifeblood to this club is going to be how we develop and teach these young players. The, the habits we build in them, the behaviours, helping them adjust to their position, uh, making them tough and resilient and strong, and and we did and and." And I guess at the time, through the grind and you know, losses that would tear your guts out and, and get you ridiculed and um, yelled at and people fully in the supermarket and question what you're about before. What would you know about footy? You, know, you never played AFL footy yet. While at that time I thought it was hard work and a grind, that, that was actually the fun part because we were building something and, and I guess... You know, to go through 2005, six, and seven, there was a fantastic finish and then premature end in 2005 and then an unfulfilled year. But that was just part of the journey. It was part of what they're about. And what, you know, talking to Bomber years after, we, we, we felt we had a unique ability to build great players, but we building great leaders wasn't our strength. And that's where, the club was smart enough and, and we were wise enough to say that we need a hand to do that. And that coincided with a group who, and I've often asked, been asked this, Peko, in, in interviews and, and functions you go to, you know, what, what happened with the players? And, and I firmly believe they just got sick of letting each other down and losing and, and coming up short. I think they just went, no, no more. You know, this isn't going to happen anymore. And, there was a feed, feedback mechanism set up and the players, to their credit, started with the toughest eggs, the hardest heads, the toughest eggs. They they gave them feedback around behaviours they didn't like, didn't appreciate. And to their alternal credit, in particular Scala, he was first. Uh, I think the whole thing could have gone under if he'd resisted and, and got agitated, but he just said, yep, fair enough. And he was being given feedback by 19-year-old kids who played two games, no games, and <laughs> fair enough. And he was, was and always will be the spiritual leader of that group. He was never captain, but he was he was the, 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 the um, footy IQ and brutal ruthlessness behind the whole team. And he was happy with that. That's what he was about because ultimately all he wanted to do was play in a great team and help that team win premierships. But it was, it was a terrific journey and, and often... Uh, talk to people that it was just a unique uh, opportunity to build a career and live through the journey from that 1999 draft, draft, which was just extraordinary, really. The, the five players that came in, Moons, Boris, Lingy, Chappie, Joel, Corey, and... Which other one? Was it Moons, Lingy, Joel, Corey, Boris, Chappie? And then the, the 2001 draft, which produced Gazza, um, Cal, Jono and... Jimmy Bartell. Jimmy Bartell, you know. Um, so there's, there's half a team of all-time greats. So uh, the, the journey was the... As, when I think back, it was hard work, but when I think, when I look at it now, no, it was just wonderful learning for all of us and... Um, built resilience and work ethic and and um, knowing that you just need to stick to your guns, you need to stick to what you believe in and keep going. Well, Brendan, you, you moved on from that and eventually ended up, uh, at the, 
I guess, the pinnacle of your coaching career, coaching the Bulldogs, a bit of a trailblazer, as you mentioned, about not having played um, at that level yourself. Um, and I, I presume, again, it was pretty tough, but obviously they won the flag in 2016, only a year or two after you finished. Um, how do you feel about the whole experience and how, were you excited about the 2016 flag? Did you see things that you did that helped and were there things that you went, oh, maybe I could have done this or that? that oh, yeah. yeah the, I remember about five minutes after the siren, I just went for a little walk around the block in Bowen Heads by myself and uh, reflected on a few things and, um, you know, a couple of people were actually out in the street and they commented, you know, that I had a hand in it and should be quite proud of what had been done there. So all of the above to answer your question, Mark, I, you know, the elements of their game and uh, the hardness of their young players in particular that day, they were incredible. They're as good as Dale Morris was and he was he was the best, most pivotal, influential player on the ground that day because he, he took Franklin apart and just stood up consistently with a with a with a bad back injury. He, the young blokes were, were amazing. They put their head over the ball. They ran hard. They were tough, and they just had that kamikaze way about numbering, tackling, pressuring, surging the ball, and and moving it forward. And and what I linked it to was probably in my last year there, uh, we we were just growing the ability to widen the, widen the ground and, and not all stay at the contest, actually get moving when you saw we were going to win it. But we couldn't do it for a couple of years because they'd get pushed off the ball or they'd fall over or they physically couldn't deal with the game. So it was a bit of a um, hiatus period where we, we were trying to build contest method that would open the ground up offensively and get the ball moving. But we were unreliable because we just weren't strong enough and tough enough to do it. And, the reality is that most young blokes take five or six years, one, to get their body physically developed because until they're physically developed, they can't deal with the AFL game mentally. It's it's too hard for them. It's too physically demanding. They get puffed, they get knocked over, they get sore, they get injured. And then when their bodies fill out and grow, and, and we had this really comprehensive leg lifting program while I was there, they worked really hard in the gym. So one side of me says, well, the base was built there. But the other side says, well, Luke came in and did a marvellous job with them. You know, they they weren't in a great shape emotionally and I take responsibility for that when I left. And there's a plethora of reasons for that. Uh, it was where they were at um, in their maturation. It was the influence of some senior players that um, probably weren't invested like they should have been. Uh, there was some things behind the scenes um, through the coaching group and there were some things behind the scenes at board level. So on one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have that. And say, so, well, if I had my time again, I, I probably would have probably not gone as hard at them in the last couple of months. Uh, but uh, every, every decision I made was club-based and what was best for the club. And, and, I, and I'm fine with that. And, you know, a month after it, I sat down by myself and said, well, you know, am I... You know, by the time I left the Bulldogs, I, I felt like I wasn't a, not only was I not a great coach, I wasn't a great bloke. Um, and then I rested that on my mind a month later that no, 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 I was a, I was a decent human being, uh, and I knew I could coach and, and teach. I, I just had a bad couple of months, and there was these um, things happening away and behind and underneath that uh, that I wasn't aware of. You know, but, you, know you, you, you assume leadership, you. We assume that um, lots of things can happen, and uh, and they did. On the Cats Whiskers this week, we're talking with former Geelong assistant coach and uh, former Western Bulldogs head coach in Brendan McCartney. And Brendan, you've coached at uh, at the 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 community level, obviously with with Ocean Grove, and and now with uh, with North Ballarat in the in the BFL. You've also uh, you know, had charge of a, an AFL team in, in your own right. I'm wondering for the layman out, out here amongst us, um, are the basics of coaching at the two levels similar or are the differences quite dramatic in terms of the basics of, of coaching? No, they're the same. <clears throat> it's a good question. They're, they're very much the same at any level. Uh, You've got to be clear about... The, 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 the other thing... 
Yeah, number one thing you have to be clear about is uh, the type of people that represent your club and them understanding what you value as a coach and a coaching group. And then you, the talent emerges or it doesn't emerge or you go and find it or you develop from underneath or whatever. But those, those two things are incredibly important and wrapped around all that is your ability to build relationships and connect with people and, and listen when you need to, talk when you need to and uh, create an environment where discussion is welcomed. But at the same time, if it's five minutes to go in a game, you haven't got time to sit down and collaborate away of getting the ball out of the back line. You've just got to send out a message, hey, kick it when you're under pressure or use your numbers or forwards need to come up the ground and, and provide a contest. And that's just an example of, of pluck. But fundamentally the same. But the difference at AFL level is there's just so many other things at play. Uh, it's the brand of the club, uh, which boards are hypersensitive to. Uh, the media is hypersensitive to uh, all things that don't matter as a rule. And, and when you get to AFL level, uh, the, if, if you're playing well, the, uh, right, who do we can, who can we uh, apportion credit to here? If things aren't great, right, who, who do we whack the blame on? And that, that's, that happens at a, at a vastly different level. But in the end, though, you know, the North Ballarat at the moment are thrilled to bits with what we're doing because we're winning. And part of players being happy is that the training is right, that they feel they're getting coached and supported. And if there's wins associated with that, they, they're super happy. So um, I've, I've seen um, a lot of happy players in my time, a lot of sad players. And happy players are usually playing in winning teams. The sad players are playing in teams that, that aren't winning. And it's accepting that. And that's, that's coaching. But... Um, fundamentally coaching is coaching at all levels but at, at the top level uh, I equate it to swimming in a pool with sharks and you can't see them they're, they're, they're there um, and the only way to keep them away from it is to win games of footy that, that's, that's the only way to do it and we all accept that when we go in Back of the old Ballarat regions doing pretty well out of the old Geelong firm with uh, yourself at North Ballarat and Ronnie Watt at Gordon just up the road, which is fascinating to see him still in the coaching caper. Now, tell us a little bit about your take on watching the current game. I know in speaking with Gary Ablett Jr. in the process of working on the book with him, he made the the comment to me that uh, Rodney E. coming in the Gold Coast tried to impose a game plan on a list at the Gold Coast that they just simply weren't ready for. Do you sit and watch the game with a critical eye now at the AFL level and perhaps look at a, a team and say, look, that particular club actually isn't coping. That player list isn't actually coping with the, what that coach is requiring of them. Uh, no, not in, in those terms. Uh, it's an interesting question, but I think I do watch football and, and see younger players in particular still coming to grips with, with footy and what the game at that level requires. And, Generally speaking, it's their physical attributes. They're either not quite fit enough yet or physically, and it's more often than not, it's just physically big enough and strong enough. So they get pushed off the ball. And, and a game style is a game style, but inside the game style are pivotal contests. So you, you can be doing beautifully while moving the ball. So your focus might be to widen the ground and then bring the ball back through the corridor and then kick it long to the forward line. And it, it works perfectly. Then you've got a young, tall forward who gets worked under the ball by Stephen May. And six or seven years ago, Stephen Moe was getting outmarked mm. by Jack Rewald and, and senior players. So that, that's the essence of it. So I more tend to take miles back to uh, what happens in, in different parts of the ground and, and you, you get a bit of a view. But nine, 90% of the teams are playing remarkably similar. It's, there's very little difference. They all watch each other that... The access to behind the goal vision now, and 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 it, it would have limited a little bit. But two or three years ago, you could go and watch five games of footy a weekend as a coach, four games, and, and I often did. I'd go and watch three, and you'd watch a half, and you go, "Well, there's not too much difference here." But key that the, the great teams have people who can get it done at the contest. And having said that, the other part of it is that you know football visually has changed a lot. I'm telling, but the mechanics and the workings of it haven't changed one bit. You can't 
win games of footy consistently if you don't outnumber. You can't consistently be a really good team if you haven't got people that can pick the ball up under pressure, can tackle, can step up in a tackle, can hold their ground in a contest. Uh, you're going to find it hard to win games if you've got people who panic with the ball and need to be able to find teammates by hand and foot. And underpinning all of that is you've got to have a team that understands and values defending the ground when they haven't got the ball. And then after that, you you, you let them go. You know, I've, I've never been one to uh, tell players, you need to handball here, you need to run and bounce here, you need to kick here. No, you've you got to play footy. You've you got to back your instinctive ability to play the game. But please don't move too far away from those things that I just spoke about, you know, the defending, the outnumbering, strong, tough players around the ball, using their teammates, creating space for one another. That footy's always been the same. And you know, I've got a, a great story that I love. My first week at Melbourne, I, I ran into the great Hassan man who played in three or four flags under Norm Smith. And we had a good chat on the sideline. I just dropped out of, it was a pretty good role in my first year. I could sort of come in and out of training and um, help with the drill, work with young players, work with senior players. So I spent about half an hour with him one training session and I asked him, you know, what, what Norm was about, the great Norm Smith, and, you know, what was one, the one thing that he, he preached and drove and he said, more numbers around the ball. So in the 50s, that, that's all he drove and he said, if we lost a game, if we lost form, if we weren't playing well, he just said, get more numbers where the ball, are, where the ball is. And if you watch footy now, the speed it's at, and it does leave the screen pretty quickly. Whenever you see a team coming back to the ball when it's in dispute and then using good method to move it out of the area, that's the team that will be winning the game. And um, the, the games at the moment is it just goes up and back. Uh, a team does it for three or four minutes and then the next team does it. And invariably that's where momentum shifts. And yet I hear people talk about getting beaten on the outside. I hear coaches talking about our ball movement wasn't up to scratch it always comes back to the contest wall. Every decision you ever make in a game is based on, if I look at the ball, have we got more numbers or less numbers? We're either going to be attacking or we're going to be defending based on that. And uh, when Hassa said that, it was music to my ears because that great Geelong team, uh, they got, you know, the Geelong Highway got spoken about, uh, which was mythical. We never coached it. Uh, we, we've effectively built that group on, Contest outnumbering with method. Do I go in? Do I stay out? Do I move into a next space to create space for a teammate? When the ball leaves the area, turn your head, talk to your teammates and shut options down and have a crack. Put your body on the line and look after one another. That It was the most simple game plan ever. Um, and I've said, said it countlessly to people and they look at you funny. They go, nah, there's more to, no. Uh, but what that team fundamentally became were a group of men that were super in their positions, were tough and physically uh, resilient to endure almost anything. They, they could keep going and they, and, and what created all that was they just trained their bums off. They trained hard. They were a phenomenal training club. They worked hard. Brendan, Geelong, I'm oh, interested in your take and where Geelong are at at the moment. Now, I'm assuming you would think that they are a contender, a premiership contender this year. But are they too invested in mature players? They have uh, a very high number of 30-plus-year-olds. And I just wonder, stacked up against the youth and running power that uh, Melbourne and Brisbane and the Bulldogs have in particular, um, I, I find it hard to see them actually winning it this year. And then that forces pressure on the fact that um, in terms of future years, I don't think Geelong have that many shots left in the locker. Yeah, it's an interesting one. They, they have had a tendency in the last couple of years to recruit ready-made players. I, the one thing that I always smile at is so many of those great players got encouraged to move out because they're 30, 31 and last their best. Uh, they've been replaced by 32 and 33-year-olds. And But for all that, Jeremy Cameron and uh, Isaac Smith have been fantastic mm -hmm. this year. And, uh, they've done done a great job. But I, I, I guess where I sit, I've always been a draft and development. 
Mm-hmm. And I think you got to get the balance right with older players when you bring them in. If you if you encourage and inspire young people, and the and the greatest source of inspiration for a young person is around two things: that you're in the corner with them because you're working with them, and you give them an opportunity. They're, they're the things that inspire them to achieve greatness. And uh, I, look, I, I'm not there. I'm not part of this management. I'm not part of coaching. Uh, it's a risk that clearly they're prepared to take and in, in the hope of winning a flag. I, you know, I guess I answer it this way, Peko, and it's a great question you raise, is that when we won in 2007, our first decision after that was to put more money into development. So we, we bolstered development. We put more coaches in there. We spent more time with we spent an enormous amount of time with Stephen Wells through all that, that journey of drafting people. But we realigned to that, okay, who are we bringing in? And in particular, what type of people are we bringing in? And that that's the key thing. And and I guess lashed around that is I've always believed that if they're the right type of people and they're the people that you want your club to be, if they're 28, it's not a disaster. If they're 22, it's that's a bonus. Uh, if they're 33, I'm not as sure. I'm not as sure on that. Uh, but yeah, the challenge is going to be there if they if they don't quite get it right. But you know, you're often in football now at this level, you you're linked with the board, you're linked with brand management, you're linked with the CEO, you're linked with membership and financial stability and delivering that. And and I guess classic example is Sydney, who you know prophesized for a long time that they had to stay relevant in the city market by winning enough games and the great man Tom Harley has gone up there and they've gone young and they're winning games. I've noticed. Yeah, yeah, and they're, they're tough, strong kids that just go, don't they? Like they compete, you know, and they, they might get puffed. They might fall out of the finals early this year. They might win one and keep going. Who knows? But you can just see they've got this plethora of young kids that are hard and ferocious and competitive and, and they've got talent. So I guess the key is whatever you're going to do, are they the type of people that are going to help you get to the finals with the right behaviours and actions? And when they get there, they'll stand up under pressure because there's no pressure like an AFL final. It's, um, there's nowhere to hide. Um, if you're not strong over the ball, the game will find you. It'll find you in the first two minutes. If you don't want to invest in defence, the game will find you. Um, it found them out two years ago in the first final against Collingwood. Their midfield got obliterated because they wouldn't work back and support. And uh, Adams and Trelaw slaughtered them. Uh, you, you, it's it's less about age and who it is, and more about are their habits akin to thriving in finals. Uh, that's that's the key thing. And I've never put an age block on that. And when I've had a doubt of Going younger, as you well, well know. Brendan, like most football supporters, um, those of us speaking to you tonight are more likely to um, divorce our wives than to change our football allegiance. Um, someone like you in the in the AFL system, the profession, you, you've got to kind of tweak your allegiance regularly. Uh, you know, when uh, Gary Rowan kicked the winning goal the other night. I presume, not that I was with my colleagues, we were all dancing around and jumping up and down. I mean, you, you've got a mixture of, you know, on your portfolio, a number of, number of clubs that you've worked with. How do you go about watching a game of football and, and supporting a team? Is that something you miss or do you align yourself, obviously, with the teams you're coaching? But as a general thing, like you watch Geelong now, how much affinity do you have with teams you've been with before? Do you, do you have that part of... Your foot, makeup. Strong, yeah. I, I want to, you know, I'm a Geelong supporter um, first and foremost because I've lived here since I was 12, uh, 13, and spent 12 brilliant years there working and have great friendships still there. And um, so that was an appreciation for his goal, really. It was a remarkable kick from that. I've seen a lot of goals missed from that very spot. In some ways, they're easier to kick from, from the other side. It's a phenomenal kick, but it was. I went. To, I was lucky enough to get into the game and watching the last thirty seconds how the ground opened up when it was shut. It was remarkable. But having said that, 
you know, they dodged the bullet. The, the Bulldogs, uh, for mine, were the better team. Uh, but it was just a, a great game of footy. I, I, I appreciate when I go to a game, um, I, I love how Melbourne play. Uh, they're, they're purpose-built, they're tough, they number, they're strong, they share the ball. They know when to find marks in the middle of the ground. They know when to not control the game. I hate that word, but... Uh, they know when to not give the ball up easily and, and give their teammates a chance to reset the ground. Uh, and they defend well and, and they, they generally play for each other. So I'm, I'm really enjoying watching them play. Uh, the dogs play footy that you just can't help but love. Uh, it's infectious. Uh, Essen and I keep an eye on. Uh, there's not too many boys left there that I, I was there with. It was 2011 and Richmond will... Um, you know, they lived under the banner of um, probably not being as selfless as they should have been. You know, I'd never use the word selfish, but you know, that, that was the doubt on them that was all about the individual and the star and uh, star power. And to see them morph into a team where, you know, possibly the best player I've ever seen is the best team player is just incredible. When he, whereas in his first four or five years, he would have been, 39 or 40 out of 42 for team play. He's, he's now clearly the most team-oriented player in the game. So um, footy is just a wonderful thing and seeing teams grow and develop and change. You know, I'm really watching North Melbourne with interest. I watched Brisbane with a lot of interest for a couple of years. You know, spoke to Fags a lot about you know, what type of people he was going to bring in and how we wanted to play and, and he was pretty adamant that he just wanted to get strong, resilient, tough kids that he could get to know and coach hard. You know, he's a, he's a smiling grandfather, but he's a hard coach. You know, he coaches for keeps and he understands that the AFL is a winning environment. There's a lot of things you've got to do to win, but it's fundamentally a, a winning environment. So North of the next team that I'm watching, watching them grow, I, I love what uh, Matthew Nix has done with the Adelaide boys. They're, they're doing it with young kids and and getting them there. So uh, yeah, I appreciate all clubs. You know, Carlton, you know, they, they put some pressure on themselves bringing people in, but they've done a lot right through the draft in the last couple of years. And I think they'll, they'll find their way there. It's just a, a really tough industry for young players to, one, stand on their feet, two, to uh, build ascendancy, and three, be durable enough to, to keep playing and training because when you're a young AFL player, just getting through the training's a challenge. It's it's not easy. They uh, they get beaten up, physically get beaten up, and when they're sore and tired the day before a game from the previous week, it, it doesn't leave a lot of scope for, for mental preparation. And there's a, a few AFL coaches that are uh, probably feeling a little bit of pressure at the moment in terms of their uh, position. Um, I'm not going to ask you if, if you have still had ambitions to coach, but one of the players you mentioned before who uh, was the spiritual leader of the, the Geelong Footy Club during those great years and has now uh, made his transition into being one of... Uh, uh, Chris Scott's assistant coaches is the great Matthew Scarlett. It's a two-part question. Firstly, do you think he's got uh, the right credentials and the right um, uh, sort of skills to be a senior AFL coach? And secondly, do you think he'd actually want one of those gigs? Well, he has uh, answered the second question. I'm not sure. I've, I've never discussed it with him. I caught up with him on Friday afternoon at a at a funeral Um and the wake after, and it was just great to see him and, and talk to him. So, and it, catching up with him again reaffirmed your first question is that uh, he, he sees the game incredibly well. Even as a young player, he, he had a capacity to talk at training, almost commentate around the contest. He would, you know, deploy his teammates where he thought they could be best used. And he would actually tell someone who had the ball is free players. You've got two free players next to you, take them quick. So he's got a fantastic understanding of the game, but he's got this, uh, above that, he's got this incredible understanding of what a premiership teammate looks like, the type of people you want to play with and, and run down the race, and not everyone has that. He, he, he would come to us and, and say to us, and I can think of countless examples where he, he would say, look, I really like that kid. And some of those kids became super players, or he would say to us, 
look, I don't get a great feeling about this young bloke. I like him. He's a, he's a good kid, but he just gets very nervous when we're under pressure. He goes quiet. He doesn't talk. And this is from someone who never spoke off the field, rarely spoke in meetings, but on the field, uh, talk was everything. That was the connection with his teammates and that's how they kept each other playing and in the game. So his capacity to see a game and know the type of people who can drive a premiership team is incredible. It's an innate understanding. He's always had it. Uh, the, the second part of the job is the tricky part. That's the man management person and <clears throat> running a, a football department, in essence, which uh, fundamentally means uh, managing healthy egos and strong personalities in meetings and on game day in the box when they, they want something or they're driving not so much an agenda, but driving a philosophy or something they believe in. Uh, it's finding time for all the players. It's um, being really clear about your messaging everywhere. It's having a strong understanding of what the medical department wants from you, the list management part, the coaching group, the senior man, senior player group, uh, the development section, uh, all of it. You know, what, what do you want from me at the same time? Establishing a clear way of them understanding what, you need from them as a senior coach and, and that's a key element. And that's something that uh, Simon Goodwin did, which I watched with interest in his first month when he took over from Ruzi and he, he set, spent time with all areas, you know, this is what I need from you guys, what do you need from me? So there was a, a roadmap for all and they're the things that Scarlett may need some help with, I don't know. He, he might, he might not, uh, but put the right people around him and um, hopefully, a list that's healthy and and still growing and developing. He, he'll 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 do what he's done all his life in footy. He'll be a success. Well, Brendan, it has been fascinating listening to a, a lifetime in football and um, uh, all that you have achieved. And of course, uh, wish you all the best uh, in your forthcoming season at uh, North Ballarat. And uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Cats Whiskers. Thanks, Pekka. Thanks, Mark. Mark and Wes, appreciate it. Welcome back to the Cats Whiskers podcast with Wes Cusworth, Mark Brunger, Mark Browning and Anthony Petkovic. Mark Brunger, Jack Henry, is his form sufficient for him to be considered All-Australian worthy? Uh, Wes, the simple answer is yes. Uh, I I must admit, I, I wasn't entirely sold on Jack Henry in his first couple of years with the club. I, I felt he probably struggled a little bit under pressure and and uh, gave up the ball uh, quite easily uh, in situations where he was put under intense pressure in the back line. And that's certainly something you don't want in the back line. But for some reason this year, he seems to have taken on a, a whole new persona. He's jumping at the footy. He's taking marks. He's spoiling. He's finding himself down forward, following his players down forward, uh, kicking goals, taking marks down the forward line. And I think he's been one of the most outstanding players for Geelong this season. And certainly, uh, in my opinion, the most improved player uh, from 2020. And I think that he rightfully deserves to be talked about uh, in all Australian uh, circles. And, of course, he, he will probably have some fairly handy company there because there's a fellow who played his 100th game uh, last Friday, uh, last Thursday night um, in uh, Stewart that will probably be uh, in that All-Australian side as well. So it might have a real Geelong flavour to it, the half-back line or the, uh, the back line uh, for this year's All-Australian. One journalist at the half-year mark picked his All-Australian, prospective All-Australian side and he had Tom Stewart was... He's only Geelong player in the side. Do you guys think that's a bit harsh? Yep. Yeah, probably a little bit, but I think Tom Stewart, I think, was named on the bench in his team. And I think he, the following week he wrote how he probably got that one wrong. But, yeah, they, they, they uh, announced a squad of about 40 initially, and I, I would expect Jack Henry to be in that 40-man squad. You've sort of got to earn your kudos over a couple of years to get into that team. Um, but uh, he's certainly in, in great form and one of the most improved players in the competition. I still have hope that Jack Henry could develop into a genuine Barry Stoneham-like centre-half forward. 
um, as he matures and as his body fills out. I, I, and then when Hawkins retires, Cameron can go to the goal square and Jack Henry can go to centre-half forward. Well, Anthony, I want to stay with you because last week, of course, our esteemed colleague, Mr Mark Brunger, informed us that the Tigers would not win the Premiership. But I want to ask you, will the Tigers even make the eight? I think they will make the eight. I think the eight is set because simply because the, the teams below them aren't any good. You know, GWS had a chance last weekend to show us they couldn't do the job. Essendon had an opportunity. They couldn't do the job. Um, I, I think the eight is set. Um, Frio is a, is a possibility, but I don't think they'll win enough games away from Perth. Um, I think the eight is set. The Tigers are just in a bit of a rut. Um, hard work, good coaching, and their belief in their systems uh, and their stars, of course, will get the ship right soon enough. Well, Packer, of course, you and your uh, Priority One uh, colleague in Mr Mark Browning missed out on tickets to the Western Bulldogs game. You guys can head along to Canadian Park and watch uh, maybe other clubs play. Non-Cats games at GMHBA Stadium. What are your thoughts? Yeah, bring it on. Uh, it's a great ground. Uh, everyone's welcome. There's no lockdown here in Geelong. There's no COVID here in Geelong. Come on down. Um, you know, we, will, uh, we can accommodate all... Uh, they can all stay at the uh, caravan park there on the Barwon River. Um, fantastic stuff. There's uh, plenty of opportunities, great places. There's Moolap. You can go out to Moolap and visit the chicken farm. Fantastic. Get down to Geelong, all you other AFL clubs. I'll be, I'll be barracking for the Swans on Sunday um, and looking forward to that. I, it is a, setting a precedent that Geelong, I don't, there hasn't been another AFL game at Kidinia Park previously with non-Geelong game. But I do recollect, and Anthony, you're probably better than me at this, Fitzroy versus probably was the Bulldogs. It might have been Footscray then. In the early 90s, whatever the pre-season cut was called then, it wasn't the Escort Cup by then, I don't think, but uh, one of those one of those cups. Yeah, do you recollect that game? So it was a proper proper fixture. Certainly, we've we've had we've had proper preseason games involving other clubs. Remember, we had the the three way uh, game one down at Cadinia uh, Park as well, where three teams played on the one day, and the the teams sort of interchanged at regular intervals. I think that was Geelong, North Melbourne, and uh, could have been Footscray. I can't quite recall. Yeah, look, I, I think it's a great idea. I mean, obviously. Uh, the the resource that we have there at GMHBA Stadium is is a world class one, and it'll only get better at the uh, the end of um, next season once they start work on the on the final stage of the uh, development that'll put it up to over forty thousand people uh, capacity. So the ground is there; uh, it's an hour's ride down the road or forty five minutes down the road from Melbourne. Uh, most teams travel triple that when they go to Perth to play a game over there. So there really is no excuse for Melbourne teams to not come down to to Geelong to play uh, to play games. Uh, there's going to be, unfortunately, with the way COVID is looking at the moment, uh, there's going to be a real squeeze on venues uh, very very soon in the coming weeks. And I think if there's three venues in Melbourne. Uh, or in, in the greater Melbourne and Geelong area that can be used, then they have to be used. And uh, GMHBA Stadium deserves uh, to get their fair share of the games and, and, and hopefully some of the better games too, and not just, you know, uh, interstate games that, uh, that, that don't really sort of uh, attract any attention from, from local supporters. Well, boys, moving along in terms of topic, and we know that our Sport FM listeners love to hear what's happening uh, by way of the Cat's Whiskers podcast uh, here in Geelong. Our thoughts on the fact that there were no crowds in Perth. And, Anthony, I'll start with you. Uh, obviously, they would have been enormously disappointed with the West Coast Eagles-Western Bulldogs game having no crowd. Was the Western Australian government a little too keen to pull the trigger on the shutdown? I wouldn't call them bedwetters over there, the government there, uh, Wes, but uh, some I know would. Um, though I think in the end, most West Coast supporters will relish the fact or appreciate the fact that they weren't allowed to watch Sunday's game against the Bulldogs because the Bulldogs absolutely annihilated them. And um, 
they owned they owned the football. They had their own football out there, the, the Bulldogs, and the West Coast could not get it off them for love or money. Um, all those big names, and uh, they were they were just taken apart. So maybe it was a, a blessing in disguise for all those uh, Perth-loving West Coast Eagles fans. Well, uh, Anthony, uh, we don't like getting uh, too political here on the uh, the Cats Whiskers, and uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, when you hold a, a majority like Mark McGowan does over in WA, that you can practically do whatever you like over there. At the they did, you know. They one COVID case, one case, um, contact tracing uh, had a busy weekend. I'd be more worried if I was Auntie Gladys in New South Wales. Yes, I don't mind the fact that uh, they use lockdown there as an absolute last resort. Um, no, no, it's not a lockdown. It's a family stay at home. The stay at home. You're not allowed to use the term lockdown. But, uh, yes, we don't want to get politics involved in football, but I think uh, uh, overreaction, perhaps. We don't want politics to become too involved with the Cat's Whiskers podcast for fear of destroying our good reputation. This podcast is accessible on a range of podcast platforms, along with being heard throughout Perth on Sport FM 91.3. We hope you've enjoyed the program. Thanks for tuning in and make sure you catch us again next week.